I, nice. Uh, uh, that's a great way to start. So, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to episode one of season two of Unexceptional Americans. This is our second season after a tremendously successful first season. Let's fucking go! And Ethan Bird, and that uh, illustrious voice you're hearing in the background is uh, none other than the Nick Donahue. And Nick Donahue. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have some sad, sad news. Yeah, pain. All my homies know is pain. The world is in darkness, and being enwrapped in plague and climate change-induced fire, and amidst all of it, amidst all the chaos, leading lights. Um, the random yeah the randomness of of life and the indifference of the universe decided to strike yet another blow against our morale and um, jamal brooks was taken from us yeah michael brooks host of the michael brooks show co-host of the majority report um since like forever uh passed away very suddenly at the age of 36 um, earlier this week. Um, so we would just like to take a moment to, you know, dwell on that, I guess. Because um, he was very important. He was incredibly bright, um, incredibly empathetic and charismatic. Um, and one of the, like, one of the most successful people in sort of the left media space one of the best and brightest in this weird new field that we are all trying to operate in and navigate through and really sort of like a a compass for us because you know this is one thing i noticed it's the, the condolences have poured in from like literally every corner of the left um yeah they it was you know current you know nathan j robinson and crystal ball both did you know their own little things you know sort of weepily talking about um their friendships with him or their professional relationships with him um you know and and that's after like a month of them you know feuding um Zero Books obviously just published him and did a whole series. The official account on Twitter did a whole. Yeah, go buy his book, guys. Buy, yeah, that's one thing. Um, I've sort of put off buying the book for a while. Um, but buy the book. Buy his book. Um, it's currently sold out at, at uh, Red Emma's, the independent left-wing uh, bookseller that he was promoting um, in order to support them through the pandemic. Um, but uh, you can still get it from Zero Books through John Hunt Publishing, uh, which is their publishing uh, house that the Zero Books uh, works through. And you can order it through. You don't have to go to. You don't have to go through Amazon. You don't have to if you don't. Yeah. You can order it through um, uh, Barnes and Noble, which is what I did because I prefer a company first off that has actual bookstores, um, but also you know has its classics series, which runs all sorts of cool things. Um, and you can order it through there. 
and just like in the book is um, against the web, the cosmopolitan, I think, uh, the cosmopolitan socialist answer to the new right. I don't think it has socialists in the title, but that's irrelevant. Maybe, I don't know, whatever. Um, But Against the Web by Michael Brooks, that's the book and you should buy it. Um, His family is going to be setting up a foundation to continue in some way, shape or form um, the work he was doing in life. And when that is set up and announced, we should all, um, you know, donate to it. And um, yeah, we'll plug it again when it's more formalized. Yeah. Um, I did watch the uh, four hour stream that Majority Report did yesterday. Oh, you watched all of it? I, yeah, I managed to make I, it through all of it. I, cried I could not make it times. through, man. Um, not going to lie. Um, watching Sam Cedar cry on live broadcasting was. Uh, incredibly difficult and um getting a little wet in the eyes right now Um, but um yeah michael brooks um i've been listening to him since i might have been 12 when he was on the majority report as just the sam's producer um listening to him and Sam, you know, at the time being involved in like the political subculture of the internet was really hard for someone um, on the like left left because everyone wanted to be some kind of libertarian or anarchist or something. Everyone had to be like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like I may be someone who, you know, thinks gay marriage should be legal. This is like 2012 where that was like actually somewhat controversial. Um, you know, like, I think gay marriage should be legal and you shouldn't fire people for being LGBT um, and all that. Um, But you know what? You know, fuck the state anyways. You know, fuck the state regardless. NAP, bro. NAP. Um, And being in that space was kind of hard for someone who, like me, was like a socialist of the, of like the actual, like, left, left. You know? Um, who was anti-capitalist and maybe, you know, has a certain vision of the state. And um, my, you know, Sam and Michael debating libertarians was how I was drawn into them. And really, um, you know, that developed my ability to criticize and respond to uh, libertarians and libertarian right specifically. and ultimately, it helped steer me towards also being a lot more serious. Um, they were sort of one of the first internet sort of shows that I started watching a lot. Um, and they were talking about real sort of concrete politics, the day-to-day stuff, matters of policy. And it, you know, before that, I, I was really just sort of reading books, reading, thing, reading things that I could find online. And so I was kind of like up in the air. I was very sort of up in the ether of theory. And, you know, they sort of were able to bring me back down to earth. And specifically Michael in a way, brought me back down to earth in a way where I could ground myself in reality, but 
not at the expense of any sort of the theoretical ambition or um, greater vision. Um, and I think that's a that's a that's a thread he needled for you know his whole life um, that he did very well, showing us the way between you know how we can have some like hard maybe even a little complicated theory for understanding the world um, and also a serious understanding of how the world actually works in practice and then all of it driven by this you know humanitarian passion and vision um, and and sort of putting all those things together also you know hilarious i mean i yeah. developed i built my own you know uh ben carson impression that became my own series of impressions basically based off of the fact that he was doing them i have to say my uh, favorite one was the nation of islam obama that's i'll, I'll always remember that it's my favorite honestly might be one of my favorite white people because fuck them yeah what uh the the arc of history is long, but it bends towards Sharia. Um, that, and the Dave Rubin shit. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Donkey on Dave Rubin. God, that was a godsend um, in those dark days of the internet. And um, just you know what what TMBS what the yeah, no, show grew into with its global vision and scale and the fact that Michael Brooks basically managed to like introduce the American left to um, the pink tide in Latin America. And actually they did some very real work in building international solidarity between the American left and the Latin American left. Um, like literally this dude managed to interview uh, Lula and basically became the face of Lula Libre in the United States. And to the point where um, the official Twitter account of Lula da Silva tweeted out their picture of, with him and uh, condolences, which, you know, is, I think would be, if, if he, English if he was alive and he saw that, he would, he would, if he was alive and he saw that, he would die. Um, like that, that's, that's, um, that's, a, he, he accomplished many amazing things and is a tremendous and is and will be a tremendous influence on myself and he was definitely taken too soon yeah um, i'll just jump in here so like first things first i mean when i when i first started when i first became familiar with michael it was first through the majority report and that was at a time when I wasn't really sure what it was politically. I wasn't really sure how to feel because I was younger. I never read much like Nick did, which is one of my regrets, never reading much political kind of theory and those kinds of things. And I still do a better job of that. But by the time I start, first started watching Michael, I would we also regularly watching people like Ben Shapiro and Stephen Crowder. And, but what Michael, but, but what, what Michael and um, also 
some other people, um, especially Nathan Robertson. What they showed me was that there wasn't there wasn't an inherent virtue in giving giving any kind of leeway to those people. And what Michael said, his quote, his quote, "Be ruthless with systems, be kind to people." I think has always stuck with me because that's kind of the philosophy that we've had on the show. Even though it's not always easy to be kind to people, especially when we're talking about the things that we're talking about on here, it's not always easy to be kind to people that are. Um, that look at something that we're going to talk about later, like what's happening in Portland and don't see a problem with it. But what we have to recognize is not just from a moral sense, but from the sense of if the, realistically, if we're ever going to build any kind of real power and real solidarity and a real movement for the left in this country is that we're going to have to reach out to these kind of people. And I think force for doing that in this country and, and across the world. And, I know Sam said it on the um, stream yesterday that they got emails, thousands of emails from all across the world of people that said that Michael taught them more than they had known about their own country. And I mean, Michael, I didn't even know this until I read the obituary, but he studied in Turkey um, at, at uh, I forget the name of the school in Istanbul that he studied at. And he had a very global perspective, which has always been something that I've kind of um, been attracted to. And I remember just this quick, like, anecdote that I'll share is that when I subscribed to his Patreon, um, I subscribed to his Patreon. Uh, regrettably, I canceled it after a couple of months because I wasn't using it enough to really justify the uh, expense for myself um, because I was in the middle of college and in the middle of the pandemic and everything. But, um, but the first thing that stood out to me, I'm not sure if it was the first thing I saw, but when I subscribed to Patreon, I looked at the member only content. It was about he had a whole segment. It was like 15, 20 minutes about the, sorry, I, I can't keep this together, but he had this whole segment about the civil war or rebellion in Mozambique in like the 1970s. He was like talking about that. And I just thought that was so cool how there's this guy that, I mean, he's, I mean, I don't think he's ever been to Mozambique. I don't even know if he's ever been to Africa, but he's just, care so much about the entire world and the entirety of humanity and it's just struck me that this kind of because it, it goes beyond just politics because there's a lot of people that can even if even if they're being genuine most of the time um they can they they, they can turn this whole political thing into just you know x's and o's just talking about political strategy just talking about you know, the ins and outs, just the day-to-day, -day, you know, what's what's hot, what's new. But Michael had a real vision that grounded me, and I think Nick to some extent as well, to a great extent as well, which grounded us in this kind of vision for the world and this kind of vision for our interpersonal relations as well, um, which is not always easy. And that's the point, you know, it's hard a lot of the time. But Michael was one of... If not, like, when, I mean, he, I mean, I'm not someone who needs to rank everything, but he could be the most, you know, compassionate and, like, visionary person that I ever witnessed online, or, for that matter, that I read in print or anything. I mean, he is that, was that important to me, and I, I mean, Nick said it to me, um, like, 
he had hoped to meet him one day. I had hoped to meet him one day, and unfortunately, it's never going to happen. But we will. And I think um, I'm not claiming that we have some kind of mantle here by any stretch. I mean, we're a very small show, but I hope that the work we're doing here will be something that Michael would be proud of if if he had known about it. Because I hope that because we both were inspired by him to a large extent, and I think we both will try our best to. You follow in like similar uh, in in that vein because left media is small and um, needs literally just like needs more. You look at the sheer number of right wing channels that you can find and they're just generally and left wing media is small and sort of fractured and infighty as it is. needs to grow and have more people reaching out to more and more of an audience. And, um, you know, I think what we're trying to do here is try to be a part of that. And um, we'll see how successful we get with that. But, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's, we, we want to show that we'll be following in the sort of vision that he imparted to all of us. I mean, it's, it's necessarily like just realistically, I mean, we're not in the same league because we don't have the kind of funding we don't have. This is not our full-time job by any stretch. I mean, <laughs> this isn't even a this job. Is, this is not even a job. <laughs> this is, but what that allows us to do is to be really authentic, um, which, which is something I, I also wanted to say about Michael is that for everything he, for everything that he did, and as big as he got, I don't think he ever once adjusted his, his messaging or his content or like what he was going to talk about because of what he thought would be, you know, popular to get him more clicks or to get him to be, and still, with he chose with to now, use his platform of, to make new things popular, yeah, rather was, than pers- just chase whatever is popular. And someone said, a, someone said, I forget who I saw online about Michael is that he was someone who was going to shape the world for good. He wasn't going to be shaped by the world, and I think that's a perfect way to encapsulate what what he was all about because he was going, was always going, and like you said, it makes me something new. He was going to, you know, talk about things in Brazil and Mozambique and the Middle East and in India and all around the world. And he was going to talk about, he was going to talk to, and he, he brought on so many different people. And the stories I saw on Twitter were just incredible of different people that he had touched in very small ways that was never public until now. That was never something he was doing for publicity, for, you know, any kind of perceived advantage it was just because he was a genuinely good person and he brought on people like uh brandon sutton who i think is great he brought on a bunch of other guys that were basically no names when michael first brought them on he gave them a, a home and he gave them a community and just the and it's just what's so sad about his death beyond just the fact that he's a great person because we never really knew him personally obviously but what's sad is that he was just getting started and we never will know the kind of potential he could reach if he had been given his the full life, you know, that we've come to expect in the, you know, the modern era of 
a human being to have that amount of time to grow his movement, to grow other movements that he was always helping out, to grow other communities, other platforms. I mean, he could have, he could have been like the face of the left in America beyond what it is, what it even is currently. We, we don't know what he could have, he could have become. And that's, that's part of what's so sad about seeing someone ripped so soon, someone that you didn't even know, but you felt like you knew a part of them and you felt like they meant so much to you and that they were going to do so much to make everyone's lives better. And that's just, this is what he was trying to do. So yeah, sad. and it's very sad. Um, and uh, I think with that, we can... Um, yeah, we don't want get to... Into the news of the day. Um, it's also not which great. We like, which also a lot of it's not great. Um, Here's our optimistic hour. Cops we'll, in Portland that don't have any marks. Yeah, let's get into uh, what I'm going to start referring to as the ultimate culmination of everything George W. Bush set in motion <laughs> um, in the uh, 2000s, which is the Department of Homeland Security deploying unmarked, unidentifiable agents to Portland to, um, you can't really say arrest, because legally, it's not an arrest, because in the videos, you can see that they're not reading anybody their Miranda rights, which is legally required for any law enforcement officer or agent to do as they arrest you. Or else, once you're on trial, you can simply say, the police unlawfully detained me by not, um, you know, reading me my rights, um, because they didn't. Um, they basically are, and then, you know, they're, they're, you know, accosting people, cuffing them, and then throwing them into unmarked vans, like unmarked, like rental minivans, and then speeding off. Um, essentially, this is the DHS being deployed to kidnap protesters. Um, and... It's, it's, it's illegal. It's unconstitutional. I would say the DHS is unconstitutional as a whole. Um, this is something that liberals should have been talking about since 2003, when Bush created the DHS. Because what it effectively is, is an unconstitutional domestic army. One of the one of the greatest failures, I think, of the left throughout American history, not not, not maybe the left, but the left party and the people that are ostensibly on the left in American politics, at least. Um, the left of mainstream also, politics. Yeah, and also people that are, some people that are on the genuine left, but there's been a big failure of people to be willing to stand up to things in the moment that seem like a good decision because of this kind of patriotic fervor and fear that's being weaponized by the right. And Democrats have always been too scared to ever stand up people that are waving the flag. They were too scared in the 1970s with Nixon. They were too scared in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. They were too scared in the 1990s when Bill Clinton became a Republican, essentially, in the way that he talked about crime and they when he talked about not just, you know, tough on terrorists abroad, but tough on criminals at home. And the, and the way to the 2000s with George Bush 
when so many Democrats voted for the Patriot Act, so many Democrats voted to create DHS. And still um, do, and still, still are. And still, the fact, the fact that- the They're fact talking that, about expanding surveillance powers right fucking now. Fact I, that like, literally majority as Democrats, the majority of Democrats didn't vote to cut the defense budget by 10%, which is literally just restoring it to pre-Trump levels, not even any further than Not that. even lowering it down to pre-Trump levels. It's like lowering it down to like midway. Bernie's amendment to lower the military budget by 10% is basically, or was, because it just got defeated by a vote of 23 to 77. Um, more than half the Democrats, I think. If I'm more than half the Democrats plus every single Republican. Every single Republican voted no. Which, um, by the way, I continue to be vindicated every day by um, my diagnosis of the Paul family, specifically Rand Paul, from like 2014 till now of being not libertarians, I, that libertarians are all frauds, um, that all they care about really is lowering their own taxes. Um, libertarianism is a, right libertarianism is a inherently contradictory ideology. Yes. Um, because fundamental, yeah, and th this is the thing where, like, I used to see a lot of these people around 2014 be like, I'm a classical liberal, or I'm a libertarian, or a constitutionalist. I believe the government has only, like, three fundamental, like, the federal government, at least, should have only three fundamental duties. Um, enforcing the law, protecting our borders, and um, maintaining a military to defend us against foreign enemies. Well, libertarians think that's all it should do because anything else is interfering with the free market and infringing upon private property rights. Um, libertarians, when it comes to pretty much every politician who claims to be something of a libertarian, which, by the way, I used to point out to libertarians all the time that Rand Paul is not a libertarian. He's a self-identified constitutionalist, which means nothing um, for obvious reasons. Um, they really, really want the government to do a lot when it comes to those three things. When it comes to, like, they want to strip down the government, the state, to just its most bare bones, repressive functions. They want a police state, but no more of a state. Yeah, they they want they they want to get rid of all regulations, all social spending, all social policy, all wealth, all the welfare and regulatory state the public sector, all of that. But they do want to have the state keep all the people with guns that work for them uh, to, you know, enforce private property rights and to an, uphold private property um, and the sanctity of the nation state, you know, fun, fundamentally, you know, break down the bourgeois state to its most fundamental uh, functions. And, um, so, you know, when it comes to Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and their ilk uh, voting against this amendment, yeah, it's not really surprising. You shouldn't be surprised. And if you're still one of the, if you're still one of the, like, I don't know, 25 actual libertarians whose views have not actually changed that, whose position actually hasn't changed since 2014, then I suggest, um, you don't be you can be disappointed i guess just don't be surprised and stop being surprised 
because um, that's all these people do. They're all Republicans. They're all going to do the things that the Republicans have always done, which is always increase the military budget. Um, of course, the thing with Democrats is they just don't increase it by as much or they want they don't want to shrink the military. They want it to be more efficient. You know, they don't think we need as many boots on the ground, so we don't need that many people in boots. So, but, but we can build a crap ton of drones and new fighter jets and new bombs, and we can modernize our nuclear arsenal instead of reducing it. We can build a whole new generation of nukes, but retire a bunch of the old ones. And we'll have a net decrease, but not really. Or, in fact, we might actually have net increases. Um, and there will be a bunch of budget overruns, but we're going to all, but it's all painted under the patina of actually, no, the military will be leaner and more efficient and whatnot. Um, when in reality, they're usually just creating a whole other set of excuses other than the Republican set of excuses, which is just, you know, patriotism. If you don't like it, die and leave. Um, you know, uh, to basically be like, well, actually, you know, we tried to make the military less expensive, but actually we ended in, in less large. Well, actually, we ended up growing it and making it more powerful and more dangerous and more expensive. Um, and, old, and of course, now we're a little bit off track, but this is all this all moves um, in tandem with the erosion of civil liberties, um, the preservation of the military, a society that. Is, this is what Chris Hedges calls the site, or not Chris Hedges. He uses this phrase a lot. Oh, God, I, I wish I could remember the name of every single person who he quotes, um, <laughs> who he quotes all the time. Um, the psychosis of constant war. When society is constantly at war, um, this is what Malcolm X referred to when he kind of meant when he said chickens coming home to roost. You know, when he refer, when when JFK was assassinated, Malcolm X um, was asked about it, and he said, "You know, it sounds like chickens are coming home to roost, and I don't cry over chickens coming home to roost." Um, and um, what he's you know what he meant by that was basically you know under JFK, um, the CIA got very involved in undermining. Um, national liberation movements in Africa, um, including during, I think it was either shortly before, shortly after JFK's inauguration, um, he, um, the, the initial operation I think was given the green light by Eisenhower, but was allowed to continue by JFK. Um, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba and the installation of Mobutu Sese uh, Seko in the Congo, when that happened, um, I, and that was sort of maybe indirectly what Malcolm X was referring to. You know, we assassinated a popular democratic leader of a national liberation movement in the Congo. Um, and then, you know, through some, somehow, some way, JFK ends up getting assassinated. Um, you know, the United States kills all these leaders all over the world. Um, because it treats every other government like a pawn on a chessboard, um, then, you know, eventually that's kind of stuff, that attitude, that atmosphere you create, um, that precedent you set comes back to bite you in the ass. Um, happening back in a big way now. And I think it's, it's happening right now. Yeah, that, that's what's happening. You know, China in a large way, actually. In a very, in a very real sense, um, 
it's coming back to bite us in the ass in, you know, we decided to start all these endless wars halfway around the world where we, where we have occupied um, Iraq and Afghanistan and Northeastern Syria for, we're going to be doing it into perpetuity at this point. That's what it looks like. Um, Dick Penny said that fondly, that this could be a war that lasts forever. Yeah. And um, the Department of Defense set up a program under the Bush administration, continued by the Obama administration and continued by the Trump administration um, for the DOD to, once it's, once it's various vehicles and weapons, once various, you know, pieces of equipment um, have gone through their tour of duty in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they're retired by the military, the Department of Defense will transfer them um, through the Department of Homeland Security to various local police departments. The war on terror was a process of starting these endless, the war on terror overseas and the war on terror at home, which involves the hyper-militarization of our police, the creation of miniature surveillance states within local police departments. Um, all of this is intertwined. Um, you know, uh, the way that Chris Hedges frames it is the tools of control and the violence and brutality that is deployed at the edges of empire eventually comes back to the core of empire, into the home. And, you know, we, wait, we go in search of defending our national security abroad, and we're trying to defend our homeland security here, domestically. We end up destroying our own civil liberties and our own freedoms um, and our own rights and our, the, the protections we have from the authority of the state. We've eroded them almost completely, almost entirely. Um, now we're one of the most surveilled and heavily policed and incarcerated societies on the planet. Um, and I, I, I will, uh, I, I want to cede the floor now because I think I've been going on for a while. Yeah, it's okay. Um, it's good. Um, so I just want to point out is uh, some kind of time. This is something I saw today on um, on. Uh, Twitter. Apparently, Dave Rubin um, said that 1984, the book um, by George Orwell, of course, the lesson of that book is that, uh, which is kind of related to what we're talking about right now, the story um, is just about the loss of civil liberties eventually turning into a mega powerful authoritarian state. And he said the message of that is that they, they needed someone at the time to, like a Trump in their time, Dave Rubin said this because then he would defeat political correctness and save them from all that stuff. But what we're seeing now is that political correctness is being used. And there was a really great article in The Intercept about this. I don't know if that's not to you, Nick. I don't, I don't think so. But um, definitely should read it. Everyone listening should read it. In the Intercept yeah. about how PC is actually a tool of the right in this country to any extent that it's you know, to, to a large, to a much larger extent, the PC of the left is, and the PC of the left is only taking hold now. And I mean, I would argue, especially that it's in large way just to be used as a tool to stop racists from maintaining positions of power or sexual abusers or what have you. It's not, so the PC of the right is that we can't question anything that the empire does. We can't question anything that the military does, that the police do, that the, you know, 
government is doing because it's all in our best interests. And to the extent that 1984 is about PC culture, it would be about that kind of culture because that is all of the all of the kind of terminology and the kind of tactics that are being used by the Trump administration now and were being used um, and perfected by the Bush administration as, as Nick tied us back to Bush before. And the idea that Trump is somehow kind of revolution against political correctness is just not true. He's a revolution against the consequences of any kind of the of all the despicable things that he says, but he's not the, he's not in any way stopping political correctness. He's only stop trying to use it as a tool against the left while maintaining it when it can be used as the as the weapon of his choosing. And I think it's really dangerous for us to. Yes, there are certain excesses, and we've talked about this before. You know that can go too far, but it's it's dangerous for us to cede that admission that 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 the admission that SJWs are some kind of problem on par with the authoritarian police state because it's not even yeah. comparable. They're not comparable at all. And this is like the big thing I want to talk that, you know, free speech warriors and people who are obsessed with the impending threat posed by um students and liberal or left-wing academics on college campuses and the cancel culture that they create that suddenly everybody got themselves worked up over the cancel culture this is one of the funny things um the people who are supposed to be like the smart famous successful people who deal with all this shit um always seem to catch on really really late to certain things that exist whatever cancel culture is it's past its zenith it's way past its prime if you were going to write a letter about it you should have done that when like i don't know james gunn um almost got fired um because he used to do shock humor tweets before he got like famous and successful um then you know if you were going to write a whole letter in it to be published in harper's you should have been worried about that and you should have and if that's the real threat you're worried about the free speech where is your response to you know the fact that the police have been getting mil- the police the bush administration the obama administration when i have been militarizing the police for two decades at this point um that we've had three presidential administrations and two decades of police militarization of an ever-expanding surveillance state of never-ending wars, of destruction of our civil liberties, the Obama administration's war on whistleblowers that has been continued and escalated by Trump to a great extent, um, the real attacks and dangers to freedom of speech, to the First Amendment, to our rights, to uh, peacefully assemble, to petition the government, to demand a redress of grievances, to ex- freedom of speech, you know, the freedom to speak without being um, censored by the state um or you know the the ability to speak freely the freedom of the press the 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 press's independence from uh vested interests um uh, vested political interests and its ability to you know freely inform the people um and give voice to um all sorts of opinions um these things have been being undermined these things started being crushed by the war on terror. <laughs> These things started getting crushed when um, 
you know, if you want to talk about political correctness, Bill Maher, in his way more liberal days at the beginning of the 2000s, his show was literally called Politically Incorrect, and he lost it because conservatives got pissed about him calling George Bush a coward. Which, you know, has led to him having the disaster of real time on HBO. Um, Bill Maher is bad. Bill Maher is bad. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but yeah, the point and, there. and not to mention that today, the whole language and legal structure around terrorism, which is incredibly vaguely defined um, to the point where, you know, uh, and also has created a whole parallel uh, prosecutory structure. Um, where due process basically doesn't apply to people accused of terrorism. You might as, if you're accused of terrorism, you might as well not expect a jury trial. You might as well not expect fair representation. You might as well not expect a state-appointed lawyer who will actually do their job. You should expect to be thrown in jail and the key thrown away for a very, very long time if you are lucky. Um, and ultimately... Um, Why do they have a prison in Cuba? Yeah, we have a we have a torture camp in Cuba, full of people who have never been charged due to due process. The government has claimed the right to assassinate Anwar al-Awlaki, allegedly committed no other crime than producing videos promoting, obviously, the terrible ideology um, that he was um, an advocate of of uh, radical. Uh, Wahhabi um, extremism, and he, but for but he was an American citizen who had been charged, who had not been formally charged with anything. It had been alleged by random journalists that maybe, maybe he had some tangential connection to the nine, to some of the planners of the nine eleven attacks. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Not and no concrete definitive proof has been offered um, to this day. And the Obama administration assassinated him by drone without any due process. They didn't even charge him with a crime um, and find him guilty um, in absentia of treason or anything like that. Um, and certainly no crime he, would, he could have been charged with would have warranted being incinerated by a drone alongside dozens of civilians. Um, and of course, his son was then murdered similarly by a drone, and there were no such allegations against him of potentially being connected to terrorists. He was simply going around Yemen looking for his markets and hospitals. unaware that he had been reduced to dust. Um, and of course, um, the Navy SEALs, of course, in the, the to, on the stay on the note of the Al Alaki family, uh, you know, the the daughter, the half uh, sister of. Um, uh, Anwar's son, Anwar's daughter, Noir, um, was murdered by Navy SEALs um, just at the beginning of 2017, in early 2017, um, by Donald, on Donald Trump's orders, um, by SEAL Team 6, uh, the heroes who, extradition, who extrajudicially assassinated Osama bin Laden, um, who also never got to face trial. Um, for, which means, you know, technically he, he was just murdered. He wasn't actually a charge for various crimes against humanity that he committed. It definitely was, I think it's def, it was definitely possible from everything that I've seen, which is obviously not complete, but that they could have taken Osama bin Laden alive 
and brought him back to the U.S. for a trial or to the Hague or something. I mean, he was, it was not like this kind of situation where, where um, he was like, had to be killed to like, let, not let him escape. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's, I not know, 20, they, it's not, we, we don't live in 24. Like, I hate to bring this thing back that this argument that liberals used to use against torture in the 2000s, um, but we still have to use it. We don't live in 24. Jack Bauer and the villains he fights are not real people. And the situations they find themselves in are things that have never happened. Sorry, Sam Harris. You will never have to torture somebody to find the nuke in L.A. That doesn't happen. And if we captured Osama bin Laden, we were, we were not going to face some sort of like Avengers first class scene where like a bunch of Al-Qaeda fighters would have like taken off their disguises and freed him from prison or something in The Hague. Um, or from a mat, or from a max security they were sent prison, and just to kill him, they were not sent in to even try to take him alive. Yes, um, and and I've read No Easy Day, the only like first person account um, that I know of that has been published of those events, um, and they make it pretty subtly clear that the lawyer, that the army's lawyers, basically encouraged the Navy SEALs to kill him, even though they said. If he can be captured alive, capture him alive. But they gave incredibly tough, an incredibly low bar for them to use to justify killing him. They said if he's naked and unarmed, <laughs> then they can, then uh, they should feel. Then there is no other justification for uh, not for killing him. Um, but they found him. Um, like in the pitch darkness with a gun <laughs> and then they just shot him without even looking at him. Um, that is, and you know, that, that, and of course, domestically, what we're looking at is, you know, an FBI that increasingly is calling Black Lives Matter people, Black identity extremists. The original Black Lives Matter activists in Ferguson, Missouri, have been found all shot in the back of the head, execution style, in burnt out cars in the scattered throughout the countryside around Ferguson and St. Louis. Um, and the police, instead of actually doing investigations, just announces, oh, they're victims of gang violence. Even though none of these people have records of gang affiliation. So most, some of them don't have any criminal record, period. Um, and none of them have any sort of loose connections to gangs that you could even make. Um, they, they should be investigated. Legally, they should be investigated just on this, the standards, what is called for by the law. And the Ferguson Police Department just says, oh, no, the gang murder. Um, too bad. Even though there's no record of any gang killing people execution style and burning out the car. Um, in, in that county. Um, and of course, um, they're in the aftermath of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, the laws that various Republican state legislatures have tried to pass, legalizing running over protesters and killing them, um, and trying to ban all forms of protest as quote unquote economic terrorism. Um, the, and of course, once again, the empire returning home to take away our liberties, the whole Israel thing, the fact that Norman Finkelstein was almost driven into complete poverty and destitution for daring to criticize Israel, that Alan Dershowitz had him put on a blacklist 
you know, known Epstein friend and collaborator, known um, guy who seems to get a lot of massages from uh, alongside sex traffickers, even though he doesn't really like them, quote unquote, supposedly. Um, Alan Dershowitz, um, guy, known plagiarist, <laughs> Alan Dershowitz, guy who plagiarized almost his entire book on Israel. Um, got Norman Finkelstein blacklisted, ruined his career as a professor, as an academic. Barry Weiss, who just quit New York Times in a hissy fit because her coworkers think she's dumb, which she is, and clearly the New York Times editorial staff thought she was becoming too much of a problem because at the beginning of the year, if you remember, if anybody remembers this, they like exiled her to Australia to like go on vacation and just write about vacation because um, she sucks at writing and is, a, is, is an idiot. Um, she got her whole career started by getting professors who are critical of Israel fired. That was her whole, that was the whole start of her career, being a young Zionist propagandist and a serial harasser and intimidator of professors and anti-Zionists. Um, and, um, you know, also, you know, the whole bipartisan attack on uh, Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilan Omar for daring to be both Muslim and critical of Israel. Um, the fact that people were trying to call Bernie anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel. If you actually look at all this, it really seems that it's the right, the forces aligned with the right of the Democratic Party and the Republicans that are actually the biggest danger to freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of thought and freedom of assembly um, and the freedom to you know, express any sort of grievance with the government. Um, it's very obvious. So when you hear anybody talking about this, laugh in their face, but also realize that the erosion of our civil liberties and of our freedoms, of our rights, the things that government must provide for us and protect us and the abuses that it must protect us from, that those things are most under attack from the right and are deeply connected to the endless imperial wars being waged overseas and in other countries, and the various attempts at destabilizing other countries, the more clandestine wars we wage, the shadow wars, the wars that are not declared, where we have actual boots on the ground and drones being flown in places in Africa that we have no idea what's going on there. The media never covered it. The media never covered it. Not one word in CNN or New York Times or anything. It was a bit of a little, a bit of a little, you know, hullabaloo, kind of, when um, those, I think it was Navy SEALs or Army Rangers ended up dead in Mali. Why, and the big question that some people were asking was, wait a minute, I didn't know we had anybody in Mali. Or most Americans it, would ask, where is Mali? Most Americans would be like, what the hell is Mali? Well, you know the expression Timbuktu? That's literally where Timbuktu is. Uh, it's literally, you know, they're literally out in God knows where Timbuktu, you know, in the middle of the Northwest African desert, doing God knows what, um, engaged in a conflict that the French are already heavily involved in. Um, and um, why are they there? Involved in a kinetic situation, an actual combat situation where fire is being exchanged. What's going on? Why isn't it being discussed? And that um, 
and the fact that if anybody tries to blow the whistle on these clandestine operations, the very, all, all press freedom gets attacked in the process of trying to suppress those things. Um, all freedom of information is restricted. Um, and of course, the clandestine efforts in countries across the world where you know, n never, you know, never mind the fact that most of the time we're trying to install governments that usually have no respect for civil rights or civil liberties. Um, they have no respect for free, for various political free, for our political freedoms. Um, because their sole purpose of these governments is to serve business interests. All this stuff is interconnected. Um, authoritarianism, imperialism, capitalism, deeply interconnected. And we can't really escape it. Um, so, you know, whenever anybody talks about any of this stuff and they, do, and they talk about freedom of speech totally decontextualized, totally abstracted away from this, re, this objective reality, the objective reality of systems and structures that we uh, live in, then, then, then you know, Take a deep, take a deep sniff, and you'll smell a lot of bullshit. Yeah, I think with that, uh, this has been the first episode of season two, and um, to kind of bring all that together, I think that analysis you just put in was very Michael Brooks. So, uh, good job with that. But uh, oh, thank yeah, that's actually and, a really uh, high compliment. And uh, rest in peace, rest in power to uh, Michael Brooks. And yes, and stay safe out there, everyone. Donate yeah. to. Uh, we should probably put a link in the, uh, you know, what people call the doobly do, the podcast description, to uh, um, the Freedom Fund in Portland, the uh, yes, bail fund. Yes, there. and buy his book. Buy Michael's book. And also yeah. buy Michael's book, and you can do it through Barnes and Noble. Preferred that you do it through Barnes and Noble, since uh, Red Emma's is. Uh, currently out um, because it's, it's less bad than motherfucking Amazon. Um, Very true. Yep. Have a good week, everyone. Have a good week, uh, everybody. Stay safe out there. Bye-bye. Stay safe.